Last week, I, I told you about uh, a few of my recent trials and uh, from, from suffering to depression to some ongoing wounds. And uh, as we talked about those trials, I, I wanted you to think about your trials, but, but what I'll do is I'll confess this week. And so I told you a little bit about that, but I'll just confess as I look back over the past two years, I've wasted some trials. Like I've genuinely wasted trials that have been in my life by not enduring, by not clinging to the Father in the midst of it, turning to other things, which in the end, as we saw last week in James 1, 2 through 4, that short circuits my growth, my sanctification, jumping ship early rather than enduring, really short-circuits sanctification. And what I've been mulling over in this text is, uh, if I could go back, this is what I would preach to myself. If I could go back over the past two years, this is what I'd preach to myself. Verses two through four, to consider the joy, and then also this, this morning, that I didn't, Ask for wisdom in my trials. That I belled and went other places. Or stopped. Or gave up. So James 1, starting in verse 5, I want you to, to see this with me. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person, the doubter, should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So last week, James started with how we think about our, trial, our trials. And he says, consider it joy whenever we face various trials because we believe, we know, he said, that those trials are to produce endurance in us, which leads to growth and godliness, leads to maturity. Through our endurance in our trials, God is refining us to make us more godly. So to consider it joy, I told you this is everyday wisdom for life. To consider it joy is wisdom. That's wisdom. To consider it joy. Meaning, flip-flop or the other side, it's foolish to run to the idols of comfort and control in the midst of your trials. It's foolish. It's folly. If foolish seems archaic, it's dumb. It's dumb to run to the idols of comfort and control and trials. Turning to food and TV, sexual sin or a new relationship, a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend is foolish. To run to those things to escape is foolish. Like I said for myself, it's foolish to jump ship in the middle of trials because it short circuits your sanctification. And now he states... In the midst of trials, so this is not disconnected 
from the past few verses. He says, now in your travels, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should, what? Ask God. Trials like, like poverty, sickness, injustice, conflict, grief, ongoing wounds, trials like these are disorienting. Do you know what I mean? Like disorienting, where, where you're in the midst of it and you feel like you're in a cloud of confusion, can't understand where am I at and where should I go. It's like you're in the perfect storm and you can't see where should we head. Where should we set sail for? Where's our direction? I'm, I'm kind of lost. I'm hazy. We're confused and often can't see where we're going, which means uh, this prepositional phrase that James starts off is us. We're lacking wisdom. We lack wisdom. So James, if you could be here this morning and tell us in such a complex, hazy circumstance, what should we do, but only use two words. James, you only get two words, which he does. What should we do? Ask God. I mean, this is so simple, yet profound. Just simple. Just ask God. Like I told you, James is direct, pithy, and practical. He's not going to wax eloquently about all of this and, and, and kind of walk around it. He's just going to say, hey, this is you. Do this. You're welcome. I don't know if he says that, but, but he's just very clear and direct with us. Pray and ask God for wisdom. So the simple aspect of that is that it's just two words, ask God. That's you. Ask God. Later in chapter 4, he'll state that you have not. Why? Because you don't ask. You don't ask. Maybe bewildered that you don't have this, but you aren't asking for it. Every day, my little boys ask for stuff, ask for snacks, ask for help, ask to play every day because I'm their dad. And now to, to be honest, uh, between the two of us, I'm more of the no parent. Got any no parents in here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Uh, we've had this conversation in our community group, so I know, I know. My wife is more of the yes parent. And so, you know, sometimes that the, the kids pit that against us or, you know, grow up and get a little more sneaky, like start with me and then go to mom. It's like, wait a minute. Just start with the mom, uh, but not really. I just tell you that, that I honestly can be uh, more quick to say no, can be stingy, can be like, no, let's not do that. Let's, I'm not going to give you this, no this, no this. But they still freely ask me because they don't assume that I know what they want, but they want it, and so they come to me and ask me for it, right? Like we have some limits and some regulations and some permissions needed in our house for certain things, and so they're going to come to me to ask for it. So when I think about this, I think it's very childlike, not childish, but very childlike, and that James is leading us to that childlike faith of simply ask God. But it's also profound, profound in that this is deeply God-centered. So if you lack wisdom, to ask God is to be deeply God-centered, to have a deeply God-centered world view. Because that's where wisdom flows from. 
Can I tell you this, frankly? Wisdom flows from a God-centered worldview. Wisdom doesn't come from a humanistic, man-centered worldview. It doesn't. If you lack wisdom, you don't need to start with a friend, a book, a mentor, YouTube, Jordan Peterson, Dr. Phil. I don't know what you want. That's not where you start. James tells us, start with, ask your father. Go to him. Ask him. And you can see that James is fully full of the Proverbs and the Sermon on the Mount by his half-brother Jesus. Because this is Proverbs 2.6. Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. So, so James knows us. He knows Christians in such a way that he knows that we're going to walk through trials because God has not promised health and wealth in his life and everything's going to be easy. He's promised that whenever you experience trials, not if, but whenever. So you're going to lack wisdom in the midst of these trials. So what do you need? You need wisdom. Where do you get wisdom? Proverbs 2.6, the Lord gives wisdom. That's who. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. But James Annie's up a bit. So for in poker, Proverbs puts this down, and James like, I'll ante up. Two more in the stack. This is how God gives it. Generously and ungrudgingly. He's not stingy like I am. He's a generous father. This is how he so the Lord gives us some, yes, and James says, and he gives generously. That's who he is. Now, for, for the people that James is writing to, the Christians in the, the early church, and also us, I don't think this is new information, but it's a reminder. Why? Because in trials, we need the reminder of who God is. God is the generous Father. When you're in the midst of that confusing, hazy, disorienting place, what you need to be reminded of, what you need to preach yourself to yourself is that God is the generous, giving Father. I was doing family worship with our kids this week. I don't remember what, it's probably Tuesday. But sometimes we, we go through our catechism cards that we give all of our families here, the North Star Catechism uh, sometimes we're reading through the Bible, some through sometimes different books. We've got boys seven, five, and four, so we kind of run the gamut, try to hit them where they're at. But this week, I just said, I want to ask you one question. That's all I want to do. One question. If you could tell me what God is like in word, one word, like when you think about God, what do you think about? And just you have one word to answer. What would you say? And we're eating mac and cheese, and Blake says, Jesus. He's the four-year-old, so I'm like, nailed it, my man. And the older two, one says, good. And I was like, yes. One says, perfect. I'm like, those, those are good. And so I encouraged them, bit on them, how they're thinking about God and why they're thinking about them. But then I told them, if I would answer that question, can I answer that question? And they said, yes. And I said, if I would give one word to God, what I would say is Father. I said, Genesis 1 begins with, in the beginning, God created. And so often we start with, who is God? He's the maker. He's the creator. And I told them, but do you know that there was a time that he wasn't the creator? Meaning, 
before Genesis 1, he wasn't defined, distinguished as the creator. But do you know what he was before that and has been for always and ever? Father. Because he's been the father of the son, loving, radiating with joy to the son through the spirit for all eternity. And I told him, like, what I want to tell you this is, is that he's a generous, good father. So, so where I fail you, where I mess up with you, when I sin against you, when, when, whenever I do that, don't let that attach to your heavenly father because you're right, he's good and perfect. I, I want you to see him as father. Same thing for us. In the midst of your trials, if you're in it right now, what I want you to be reminded of, what I want you to bank on is who he is, the generous, giving father. The Father who generously gave us his own very Son that I just said loved for all eternity. Gave his Son generously to die in our place for our sins, to reconcile us to the Father, to make us his sons and daughters. I mean, that's Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he, the Father, not also with him graciously give us all things? This is who he is. This is what he's done for you. He pours out love. He gushes forth with blessings. He is full and overflowing with grace. God's nature is to give. Now, if you're not a Christian, this is where wisdom begins. It begins with putting your faith in Jesus, believing that he is the Lord and the liberating king who can rescue you. What I tell my kids often in disobedience or in their rebellion, I tell them, I get on their level and I say, buddy, you're, you're acting like, like you're in charge, like you're the daddy. And when you act like you're the daddy, you don't have a daddy and you need a daddy. And that's what I'm saying to us. That's what I'm saying to you. If you're not a Christian and you're just running your life however you want, doing what you want, you're acting like you were in charge, like you're the dad. But at the essence of it, you need a dad. You need the generous father. And then Christians, in trials we can be so disoriented that we think God is actually grinding us to bits. I had a friend that told me one time, I feel like I'm in this machine and that the machine is grinding me to bits, and God is the one putting the quarters in the machine to keep it going. So we can think in our trials that he's the one that's grinding us to bits, that he's tearing us up. But the truth is he is generous 
and working in our trials to refine us, to shape us, to mold us more into the image of Jesus. Trials are his servants, not his accusers. Do you hear me? Trials are not the eyewitnesses that we put on the stand to convict God of being unloving and weak. Trials are actually his servants doing his good purpose. And what is that to refine us? They're actually instruments in his hands, working you. I mean, think about Coldstone and all the, the goofy uh, things they have to sing, right? Don't think about that. Think about how they take their, their instruments and slap up all that ice cream and mold it and shape it and mold it and mold it and give it to you. I'm saying trials I guess I'm saying, trials are like that in God's hand. And you're the ice cream, okay? Just to be very clear on this terrible analogy. You're welcome. But that's, that's what trials are. They're not accusers. They're not evidence of God's irritability and wrath. If you're a Christian, they are his servants that he's using to make you more into the servant king, his son, Jesus. And if we have that perspective, James calls that wisdom. That perspective is wisdom. Because wisdom sees God's goals and trials. It looks through the haziness, the confusion, and see that God has a goal in this. That's wisdom. But James not only says this is what wisdom is like, he's, he's very helpful to us that if you lack wisdom, if you need help to decide on what to do or what step to take, ask your dad. Go to him. This is such familial relational terms. David Platt writes this, which is, I, I think wonderfully helpful when we're talking about wisdom. He writes, our wisdom grows through these three different factors, knowledge, perspective, and experience. Our limitations in all three of these areas lead to limited wisdom. When we walk through trials, we realize we don't know all that is going on. That's limited knowledge. We don't see our situation from every angle. That's limited perspective. We oftentimes lack experience in what to do. It's limited experience. This is one of those but God moments. But God, on the other hand, possesses all knowledge. He has an eternal perspective. And in Christ, he has experienced every kind of test and has prevailed. So with his unlimited wisdom, we go to him for wisdom because we know that we're limited in our wisdom. And James promises he will give it to us. So at this point, you should just, I feel like you should be inflated with encouragement like a balloon. Just like, this is my God? And James is saying, yes, he is. This is who he is. And you ask, he will give you wisdom in the midst of your trials for you to take that step forward wherever he's calling you. But James is practical and direct, and he hits us with a gut punch after that. 
and he doesn't pop the balloon, but it, it does, it, it, it takes a, it hurts. Because he follows that up with, if you're double-minded and you're asking, you can't expect God to give you wisdom. It's like, oh, okay. All right. What he's saying is your prayers can be hindered. Now, that, that's not in contradiction at all to the sovereignty of God. This is clear that your prayers can be hindered here as well as he says in 1 Peter 3. So there's explicitly two ways that your prayers can be hindered. Husbands and the same wives live with their wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Men, how you live with your wife can hinder your prayers. And family, how you ask God for wisdom can hinder your prayers. Now, now based in the original language, doubting here is not intellectual doubting. As if James is telling you, if you've ever had any questions about God's word or you've wrestled with any belief or you struggle with any uh, uh, thing about who God is, that's not what he's talking about. I'll let John Stott make the point. He says, the problem is not intellectual doubt, but moral and spiritual commitment. The devotion of our whole loyalty to the Lord. And, and so what he's juxtaposing here, James, is doubting and faith. And what he's saying is doubting is our own uncertain hearts about whether we really want God to give us this or not. Do we really want this from him? Are we asking, like, we really want this from you and we have an expectation that this is who you are and you're going to give this to us or not? Doubting is like living in two worlds. Facing two different directions. And we're, we're committed to God. We're also committed to the world's wisdom. Like we have feet in both camps. And saying this is okay, right? That we can just be split between the, the two. And James said, no, this is doubting. This is double-mindedness. Faith, in contrast, is our absolute confidence that he will give what we ask. So James is saying, if you lack wisdom... Ask God and ask God in faith. With absolute confidence that he will give it. Otherwise, with this imagery that James paints, what he's saying is you're a flip-flopper, like a politician. Like just driven by public opinion. Like is, if I'm going to get reelected, do I need to shift over here now? Wait, wait, the winds are changing. Over here, this is where I need to be now. That's what he's saying we are. Doubting, double-minded, flip-flopping. Tossed around between loyalty to God and loyalty to the world. And so again, James is direct, saying it's foolish, foolish to ask God for wisdom and then simultaneously look at the world for wisdom. Saying this is foolish to be facing both ways. Double-minded literally means two-souled. Many commentators think James coined this phrase in this book. Two-souled or a soul divided. It's like you're diversifying your investments 
hoping one really pays off. But James is telling us to put all our eggs in God's basket. Don't diversify. Don't say, I need a little wisdom from God. I have a little loyalty to God, but also have looking of wisdom for all these other places and, and pretty committed to the world in this idolatrous age. He's saying, no, no, shove it all in. <laughs> Put it all in into God's basket. Or to say it differently, be as sincere in asking as God is sincere with giving. It's really the root of it, the essence of it. And how you ask in faith is being sincere in asking, just as he is sincere to be the generous giving father that he is and to give you this wisdom. So James gives us this, I think, wonderful imagery, and he does through this whole book of this raging sea to really see this is what it looks like to be a doubter, a double-minded person. But then he gives us this example and he ends with this example this morning. James 9, 9 through 11. Let the brother of humble circumstance boast in his exaltation. But let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises, and together with the scorching wind, dries up the grass. Its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Now, if you read this this week, you probably thought, this feels a little disconnected. What's going on here? Or it may have felt like a riddle. It's like, <laughs> is this, am I supposed to know what this means? Am I supposed to understand what's going on here? But what he's doing is giving an example of what he's been saying for the past uh, uh, eight verses. He's contrasting different circumstances in life. Poverty and wealth are varying experiences. He says the poor person and the rich person are tempted in trials to want to trade their circumstances. Like when you're in the midst of suffering or grief or conflict, it's very tempting if they're poor person to think, if I had money, it'd be okay. And then sometimes you're on the other side and you're like, if, if I didn't have all this money, I wouldn't be attached to all these things and I would just live freely. Like I could just kind of wander off and everything would be cool. I'm going to have to worry about all this stuff. It's very tempting to want to swap places with one another. But he says, you don't need to trade circumstances. You need to boast in your position. Not lust about the other circumstance. Not lust about the other person. Want to be in their shoes. Covet what they have. But boast in your position. Why? Because both people, the, the, the poor and the rich, are tempted to be money-centered to have a money-centered worldview. The poor person often saying, man, I just need to get more money. I want more money. It's like Adam Sandler in The Wedding Singer, like, I want money. You have money. That's where you come in. Like, that, that's what I want to happen. And the rich person is like, I have money, and I want more money, and I can't fathom losing my security blanket. We're both tempted to, to have a money-centered worldview. But he's saying, no, no, no. Have a God-centered worldview where you boast in your position, not your finances. And what is that position? This is the answer to the riddle. We are God's children. So boast. 
That word means rejoice, to exult in, to glory in. We are sons and daughters of a generous father. So whether you're poor or rich or middle or whatever, you get to boast, rejoice, exult in that you have a generous giving father. Like that's the good news of the gospel, that poor people are exalted as God's children. They see how rich they are in Christ. I have no money to my name, but I have all the spiritual blessings that God is giving me. And then wealthy Christians are humbled by these spiritual bankruptcy in their lives. That they may have all this money, but when they look at God, they can't spend any money by their way into God's good grace. They are spiritually bankrupt, humbled at the foot of the cross. So boast in your position, not in your circumstance, not in your wealth or not wealth. Boast that you're a child, a child of the Father. So wisdom in this sees the facade of a money-centered worldview. Wisdom sees the facade of the American dream where the goal is financial success. Wisdom, I told you last week, sees the best goals and goes after the best way to get to those goals. And what's the goal that James has clearly told us as Christians? Maturity. That's your goal. He cuts through the facade of the American dream and said, no, that's not the goal. The goal is maturity in Christ. This is the goal. This is what we're after. This is why if you can be wealthy and then lose all your money in 2008 real estate bubble is that you can still boast in your position because that wasn't my ultimate goal. My ultimate goal wasn't to be financially successful. My ultimate goal is that God is going to use <laughs> losing all my money, maybe even my house to be foreclosed on so that I might mature and that's so much more worthy and worth it than being financially successful. The goal is maturity, godliness. Family, you don't mature through relying on your money. You don't buy character. You don't by godliness. You can't rely upon your money for maturity. You mature through trials by depending on your father. This is the wisdom of James. This is the wisdom of God. And this really gets back to what, what James has been saying this whole time about our divided souls, our divided loyalties. As I told you, he gleaned much of his wisdom from the Proverbs and from his half-brother Jesus, who he thought was a maniac before his crucifixion, but believed him as the Lord and Savior of the world after his resurrection. And you can hear James' words, maybe interpreting and applying Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. Matthew 6, Jesus is quite direct on this issue. No one can serve two masters. I'll put it in James' turn. No one can live with divided souls. Split loyalties. 
since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so he says, don't believe the lie that you can stand on both foundations because two foundations are better than one, right? No, they're not. To do that, to put feet in, your feet in both camps is actually to be unstable, James says. You're unstable. You can't mature with a divided soul. And so the, I, I think the imperative, the command for us this morning is to repent, to turn from looking to the world for wisdom in the midst of our trials and rather receive the wisdom of this text and turn to your generous father and ask him. It's simple, yet profound. Ask him, go to him, bank on him, depend on him. Or to say it, pose it in the negative. Will you waste your trials, waste your suffering, or will you cling to your Father and endure and mature? That's before you this morning. Throughout James, you'll feel a fork in the road every Sunday, and that's the fork this morning. Will you waste your trials? Not accept them as the servants that they are to God who's wanting to mature you, or will you actually cling to God, receive that gift from him, and endure and mature? That's your choice. I put it on your table, and you have to choose this morning. And I'm going to pray for you to choose wisely. In Christ's name, I pray, Lord, I pray and come to you that we would let go, turn from anti-wisdom, the anti-wisdom of the evil one. We would turn from the anti-wisdom, the foolishness of the world. That I know trials are hard, but you are such a good, generous, giving Father. I pray that we believe that and run to you this morning turn to you and have a single-minded loyalty to you. Asking you in faith this morning to give us wisdom in our lives and all the various experiences and trials and circumstances in this room. There's so many issues with all of us this week, most likely today. So I pray that we would ask for your wisdom this morning in faith. Confident in who you are. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen.